Dachau. In the fall of 1943, the Kovno ghetto was transformed into a concentration camp. Dealing with the SS made everyone's life much, much worse. Many people were deported to Estonia and newly created labor camps. Nonetheless, our family managed to stay in the Kovno ghetto. I worked in the trade school up to the very end until the liquidation of the ghetto in the summer of 1944. By June of 1944, the Soviet army had managed to drive the German army out of most of the Soviet Union. The front was now getting closer to our city. The remaining Jews in the ghetto, from the initial population of close to 30,000, we had been reduced to around 7,000. We were very anxious about what the Nazis would do when the Soviet front got to Kaunas. On July 8, 1944, the announcement came. The Nazis were going to liquidate the ghetto and we were going to be transported elsewhere to work. We did not believe them. We were certain that before giving up the territory to the Soviet army, they would march us to the Ninth Fort and kill us like they had done with thousands of others. My fear being shot, thrown into a trench and buried alive with dead bodies on top of me became a real possibility. A few prisoners who had escaped from the Ninth Fort had described such horrific events. That was the moment our family decided that we would not go. We would rather commit suicide. We found an empty room in the cement basement of a house and covered the entrance with a cupboard, as I described earlier. As we waited, debating whether to end our lives, days passed. On the third morning, we heard the footsteps of two soldiers coming down the stairs into the basement. My mother picked up the first syringe. I had my arm bare and ready. But the soldiers walked past our covered door, went to the end of the passage, kicked in the coal shed door, and then opened the door opposite ours and said, there is no one here. We heard the soldiers leave. My mother put the syringe back on the tray. We sat in that basement for two or three more days, but we heard nothing more and began speculating. Perhaps the Soviet army has arrived and we were already free. We carefully pushed away the cupboard and went outside. The German guards were still there. We saw our people marching to a train. They didn't need a train to take us to be shot and killed at the Ninth Fort. Perhaps the Germans were not lying to us this time. Perhaps they were really taking us somewhere to work. So on July 12 or 13, 1944, we picked up the little packages we kept ready in case of a sudden deportation, and we went to the train. We know now that after our train left, the Nazis went searching from house to house, setting each on fire. With the exception of an Eltestenrad building, not one house in the ghetto was spared. Many people had been hiding in basements like we had. When the fire started, they had to come out, and they were shot on the spot, or they were burnt inside their hiding places. 
our family would surely have died in the fire had we stayed another two days in the basement room. I have terrible memories of trains. When the concentration camp in Kaunas was liquidated, the train waiting for us at the station was not a passenger train, but a cattle train. By the time we got to the train, the wagon was already crowded. When we thought the wagon was already packed to capacity, the Nazis pushed in another 50 people. Eventually, there were about 200 people in the wagon. It was impossible to find a place to sit. We had no water, no toilet facilities, and very little air. People became sick. Some people tried to jump out through the small window in the wagon, but most were immediately shot by soldiers riding at the end of the train. Others, we later found out, survived the jump. Through the crack in the wooden slats, we recognized that we were heading toward the border of Poland in the direction of Germany. The following afternoon, we arrived in Stutthof, a town in Germany close to the Polish border, and also close to a concentration camp by the same name. The doors to the wagon opened, and we were ordered to get out and to push out the bodies of those who had died during the night. On the platform, the Germans separated the men from the women. It probably took only 10 minutes. My father, my uncle, and I were sent back to the train. My mother and aunt remained on the platform. The train took off again. We still had no water or food. We traveled for what felt like a long day and night, maybe two. I lost sense of time. We passed through Munich and stopped at a small station called Kaufering in Bavaria. Under guard, we were marched off into the countryside. We arrived at a field surrounded by two rows of barbed wire fence. There were watchtowers high up in the corners of the field. I remember seeing a sign on the gate that read, Dachau Lager 1, Concentration Camp Dachau, Camp Number 1. It was July 15, 1944. Dachau. We were all shaking with dread. Dachau was a name known and feared all over Europe. It was the first concentration camp Hitler established when he came to power in 1933, using it to lock up his political enemies, labor leaders, politicians, ministers of religion, newspaper publishers, editors, and Jews. The field was filled with simple huts. Could this be Dachau? It looked so primitive. We couldn't believe that this was an infamous concentration camp. We soon realized that we were not in the main camp, but in a subcamp of the Dachau camp system, one of 11 such working camps around the Kaufering area. A commandant, who we would soon find out was a vicious man, cursed us and yelled at us. The Nazis demanded that we hand over all the money and valuables that we had on us, and any possessions we brought with us were confiscated immediately. Some men went to the latrine, 
a makeshift structure over a trench in the ground and threw into a paper money, rubles, or other currency in a measure of defiance. The Nazis found out when currency began floating in the latrine. The commandant ordered four men to undress and forced them to wade into the latrine trench and fish out the currency with their hands. They then had to wash the money and lay it out on the grass to dry. After that, the commandant gave an order to burn the paper money. Several wild-eyed, emaciated prisoners in striped uniforms arrived and began to cut and shave off our hair. Then the same barbers went about shaving our body hair. I was a shy 16-year-old, refused their demands. I shaved myself. So did my father. Our shoes were the only items we could keep. Our own clothes were replaced with blue and white striped uniforms and matching caps. Each jacket had a number sewn on the top left pocket. My father got number 51,819, and I got 51,820. We were each given an aluminum dish and a spoon and sent to the kitchen area to receive our first meal, a bowl of soup and a slice of bread. After that, in the open field, we were lined up in rows of five and counted. We were each given one blanket and sent off to the barracks, which at that time were temporary structures made of thin press board. Later, those huts were replaced by more permanent barracks consisting of two long, flat, wooden surfaces that joined at an angle to make a pointed, A-shaped roof. A trench was dug through the center of the structure, and boards were placed on each side of the trench. We slept on the hard, horizontal boards, 25 men on each side. Soil was thrown over the roof, which in time sprouted grass as insulation. The first morning in Dachau, we were woken at 6 a.m. by the sharp sound of a whistle. We were instructed to line up at the kitchen for coffee, which turned out to be tepid brown liquid without sugar. Then we were sent back to the parade ground to be lined up and counted before being marched out to work under SS guard. We were not told what work we would be doing. After marching for some time, we arrived at an immense construction site. It appeared to be a huge sand mountain, about half a kilometer long, that was being covered with cement and steel rods. What could they be building here? Why would they cover a sand mountain with concrete? At the front end of this construction, there were bulldozers digging out the sand from inside the mountain, where the concrete cover had been completed. It looked as if they were building a giant tunnel in the middle of the countryside. There was some confusion deciding where each prisoner should go to work. There was a shout-out for mechanics, woodworkers, and blacksmiths. I raised my hand as a mechanic. Together with a few others, I was told to follow some German civilians. Four of us were selected by one of these civilians, 
and we were led to a three-story wooden building. We later realized that there were three such buildings. Each building contained four huge pumping machines. On the third floor, there were large mixers being filled with sand, small stones, and cement. These materials arrived by train and were transferred separately by conveyors to the mixers. Steel arms stirred the containers while water was fed into them. Once properly stirred, the concrete mixture was emptied into an open conical container on the second floor. The tip of this container protruded through the floor into the top of the pump on the ground floor. In our building, there were four such setups feeding four pumps. The noise generated by these mixers and pumps was thunderous. To be heard over the roar of the pumps, I had to shout in a high-pitched voice. In fact, I damaged my vocal cords working there. I found that these giant pumps were driven by 150 horsepower electric motors. A reciprocating piston pushed a load of mixed concrete into a steel pipe that protruded through the wall outward. Three-meter-long steel pipes were joined together all the way to the building site, a distance that could be from 100 meters up to one kilometer away. All the pipes were joined with hinged clamps so they could be easily disconnected should they become blocked. I was always curious about anything I saw. So one day, while marching to work, I asked the assess guard walking beside me, what will this building be? Before he could answer, my fellow prisoners berated me, hissing, are you crazy asking such questions? They could shoot you as a spy. The guard, seeing their worried expressions, said softly, it will be a potato cellar, but I was certain that the construction had a military purpose. It sure did have a military purpose. After the war, I found out all the details. Germany was the first country to develop a jet fighter plane, the Messerschmitt 262. It had a maximum speed of 900 kilometers per hour, way faster than any Allied fighter plane. The Messerschmitt 262 was a formidable danger to the Allied bombers that were flying over Germany, destroying factories and cities. Germany's problem was that they could not build the planes in sufficient numbers due to the constant bombing and destruction of the factories by the Allies. The German armaments industry was seeking a way to build these planes in a factory that was bomb-proof. By this point in 1944, the war was going badly for Germany. Hitler was trying to reverse the progress of the Allies and agreed to the idea of constructing safe production facilities for the fighter planes. A civil engineer named Franz Xavier Dorsch was in charge of the construction. The idea was to pile up a mountain of sand about 400 meters long 
and use it as a support for a curved tunnel of cast concrete reinforced by steel so thick that no known bomb could penetrate it. The shelf was close to five meters thick. After the concrete shell was poured, the sand had to be removed from the inside. The interior was a height of a four-story building. This factory was to be part of a larger network of factories where the Germans planned to mass-produce the fighter planes. Thankfully, the construction of the factory was never completed when the war ended in total defeat for Germany. I am happy to report that I did not contribute to the German war effort, although I took an active part in building the massive facility. The German supervisor of our liquid cement pumping station, whom we called Meister, Master, explained to the four of us assigned to him how the pump worked. Its role was to transfer cement to the roof of the bunker. One problem that occurred regularly was that a stone would jam the piston, which pushed the concrete through the steel pipes. Then swift action was required to throw the clutch lever and stop the pump. Our job was then to dismantle the front end of the pump as quickly as possible, clean out the stuck cement, replace the stiff rubber ring on the piston, and reassemble the machine. Time was of the essence, since the concrete in the cone above our pump could start hardening within a half hour. If a longer period was required to repair the pump, then complicated procedures had to be executed to clear out the cement in the system above us. Other prisoners were brought in to quickly clean away the cement before it would harden. The pumping was not to stop. Construction went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The pump had to be maintained continuously, making sure oil always flowed in every bearing. I learned the details of the job quickly. One day, an oil feeder unit broke. There was no replacement, and I offered to repair it. The Meister was dubious that it could be repaired. I knew that I needed to drill a very small hole in the new shaft. Our workshop didn't have the required size of drill bit, so I asked for a larger drill bit, ground it down to the required size, and drilled a little hole. Then I repaired the pump, and the Meister was very impressed with my skill. After that incident, he started slipping me parts of his sandwiches and other food. He knew that we were starving. Food was the most valuable commodity in the camp. While I was repairing the oil feeder, a German civilian engineer who oversaw the workshop was observing me and he asked me where I learned my skills. He said that in Germany, all Jews were either bankers or lawyers. While this wasn't true, I assured him that in Lithuania, many Jews were skilled craftsmen in electrical and mechanical trades, even blacksmithing. The skills I learned in the ghetto trade school helped me on many occasions.
Once the large metal buckle on the belt belonging to the Meister broke in half, and he was very upset because it could be impossible for him to find a replacement. When I took it from him and repaired it, he was delighted and unable to even detect how I did it. He rewarded me with a half a loaf of bread and other food. My fine mechanical skills had again been useful. One day the Meister came in, pulled out raw potatoes from his pockets, and distributed them to the four of us in the pump station. For us, this was an amazing event. I asked him quietly where he had gotten the potatoes. He said, they are from the potato field outside your station, but don't even think of going there. It is outside the perimeter of the construction site, and the guards will shoot you. But I was very hungry. So while on night shift, I went to the back of our pump station and looked around. A railway line lit by lamp posts ran just behind the pump station. Two guards with rifles walked in opposite directions along the railway line. I observed that they met close to our building, lit a cigarette, exchanged a few words, and then walked away in opposite directions. I counted how long it took them to return, calculated the time when the guards would be in the furthest away and run across the railway line into the potato field. I tried to pull the plants out of the ground from the top, but it didn't work. So I dug my hands into the earth under the potatoes and I pulled them out that way. I filled my pockets and crawled back toward the railway line, watching out for the guards. After they met and parted again, I waited until the time I had calculated that they would be farthest apart and ran across the line back into the pump station. I had lots of potatoes. Some of the other guys on my shift saw what I had done and tried the same maneuver, only they didn't have the patience to time the guards. As I heard, an alarm sounded and the guards fired some shots into the air They caught the guys and roughed them up. When I came back to the barracks with the potatoes, I shared them with my father and uncles. We grilled the potatoes by sticking slices on the hot iron stove, then scraping them off and devouring them, skin and all. The next day, the commandant of our camp instructed the farmer to remove the potatoes that were near the railway line. Every morning, we had to gather in the open field They are Pellplatz. We were lined up in rows and counted. If one prisoner was missing, the 3,000 or so people of our camp stood outdoors for hours, even on freezing winter days, until the missing prisoner was found. Usually, the person was discovered dead in a barrack somewhere. Then the barrack supervisor, a prisoner who was responsible for reporting the dead in his barrack, was beaten. The same count procedure was repeated on our return from work. The number of prisoners who died at the workplace had to be reported to the numbers that could be checked. One morning, when my pump was ready to start after a repair, I went to the wall and threw the large switch for the motor to start. There was an explosion and a bright lightning spark lit up in front of my face, 
totally blinding me. I heard all the pumps run down to a stop. I thought I must have blown the main fuse to the station. The alarm bells went off to alert the other teams to come and clear out all the four lines of pipes. But it was much worse. My broken switch had caused a short circuit, which had blown out the main transformer in a separate building that fed all three pump buildings. All 12 pipelines had to be cleared at the same time. Several kilometers of pipes. All cement pouring on the huge construction site stopped. I could not see anything, but I heard the construction managers coming. I heard them shouting, sabotage, and I heard talk about hanging me. Then I heard my maestro say in a calm voice, it's not his fault. The copper bar inside the switch came loose and caused a major short across all three electrical phases. I sat quietly in the silence of the station. Normally the noise of the four pumps was deafening. At the end of the day, two fellow prisoners took me back to the camp. Took several days for some of my eyesight to return. I learned later that to replace the blown transformer, the Germans had to break a wall in the building housing it. Amazingly, the Germans brought a new transformer by train and within two days had it installed. On the third day after the shutdown, we were pumping again. I had not intended to sabotage our work, yet for three full days, I managed to stop construction of this vital building site. And if not for that meister, I would likely have been shot or hanged on the spot.